think one of the things that has shaped a lot about how I talk now about anything, whenever I'm recording a podcast or standing in front of a room with people, a big question in my mind is how will someone in pain hear what I have to say? What will they hear when they hear me talk? And I don't always get that right. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. I'm your host, Angie Dixon. Thanks for joining me. Today we hear from Aotearoa New Zealand theologian Michael Frost, uh, not to be confused with Australian theologian Michael Frost, who is also worth a follow on your socials. But our Michael Frost has a PhD in theology, an honours degree in science, is a lecturer and a pastor, and is a well-respected host of the podcast In The Shift for When Life and Faith Go Off Script. Our all takes many twists and turns as we talk about science and faith, uh, Michael and his wife's 10-year journey to become parents, suffering and theology, changing beliefs, being a rainbow ally, and the church's relationship with unhealthy forms of power. Uh, a trigger warning, we do mention in this episode traumas such as infertility and miscarriage, uh, and negative experiences of church from the LGBT plus community, and others who have come out of high-demand religious spaces. So please take care of yourself and take a break if you need it. And please talk to someone if things come up for you. But without further ado, let's get into it. This is episode 69 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Michael Frost. It's good to have Michael Frost with me today. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, Nor here, quick. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yes, well, um, currently live in Auckland, Tamaki Makoto, but I was born and raised in the Hawke's Bay. Oh, me too. Oh. Yeah, Hastings all the way. Yeah, yeah, Hastings for sure. Not None of that Napier business. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a little bit like New Zealand, Australia. Uh, the Hastings Napier yes, rivalry. Yeah, totally. yeah. Uh, so yeah, grew up in grew up in Hawke's Bay and Hastings, and um, my parents were uh, hippies who had found Jesus, and ended up becoming um, church leaders. Um, and so, whilst also being orchard workers, right. so I grew up in a mixture of orchards and orchards and church, which was like par for the course in Hawke's Bay, wasn't it? Yeah, well, was everyone, everyone we, was on back an orchard when we at some were little, yeah. So you know the old holiday jobs as a kid picking yep. picking nashies. It's or, all turned um, into vineyards now, though. Well, yes, yeah, so the ones that are, I mean, obviously, it's it's hard to see all the devastation that's there. Yeah, the because the orchard that that I grew up hanging out on was the one where uh, it was you know it's totally underwater. Well, wow. there were videos of workers on roofs. Yeah, um, totally submerged. So yeah, it's kind of crazy to see. Anyway, um, yeah, Hawks Bay kid, and then spent a little bit of time my high school years in Morrinsville. Which is in the Waikato, a little town there, uh, home of Jacinda Ardern. Might have heard of her. Uh, and then um, ended up in Auckland, which is where I live now, and have been there for, I guess, most of my life now, which is a mm. weird thing to say, but I'm still a Hawks Bay boy at heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, and we're going to get to talking about theology and faith and your podcast that you run. Um, but first, 
you actually headed into the sciences at university. I did. Um, so tell us a bit about what interested you in that. What was it particularly that you were studying and where did you see that heading? Ah, this is very weird being on the scene of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I usually get to be in control of these conversations. Yeah. No, um, uh, yeah, I think science, I kind of stumbled into science really. I was at, I was at school in Morrinsville trying to figure out what to do with my life. Yeah. Uh, and I was tossing up between going to um, Hillsong College right. at the time. You may have also heard of that. Yep. And, uh, or going to university. And so I ended up choosing university. I, I chose a biomedical science degree because it felt like I might be able to do something meaningful or world-changing with that, with yeah, a, which sure. is a young, yep. Christian, passionate <laughs> sort of person trying to change the world. It yeah. felt like a, a path I could might be able to go down that, that would Im- have some impact. And so that was my f- sort of initial impulse to head into science. And, uh, and so, yeah, ended up at Auckland University um, doing a biomedical science degree. Uh, my sort of, and perhaps this, this indicates a little bit of kind of where I ended up much later on, but my interest in science did move over time to, so that by the time I got to my, my honours year and doing some, doing some research stuff, it was focused around, um, I, had, I had ended up focused on areas of psychoneuroimmunology which was dealing with uh, basically the, the, the relationship between our psychological system, our um, nervous system, and our immune system, and looking at like emotional trauma and, and the impact of that on our you know, stress response and then how that well, impacted on immune responses and, and stuff like that. So I was, it's interesting to reflect back now. I yeah. don't think I knew it at the time, but I, I think I was probably drawn to that because ultimately my interest in science was really about an interest in people and helping people. And sure. I think um, that seemed like a field of science that for me mm. um, connected to something that was more than just, I don't know, pipetting a um, sample, which, although I did do some a, a fair bit of pipetting yeah. in my time. Um, yeah. I find that really interesting because, like, I guess in my growing up in the church, science always was kind of this enemy thing where... Um, science was trying to attack and undermine our faith. And, yeah, I guess for you to then go into that, did you <laughs> did you have some, I'm going to come in and like show these signs? Oh, yeah, you know? I was there to be or, a light and a witness, Andy, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, how, how do you see that now? How do you see the science-faith conundrum or not? Oh, it's, yeah, it's so funny, isn't it? I, um, I, I, had, a, I had a weird relationship with science at that time. Which is that I saw it could be used for you know these used for good, yeah. um, but I also had big problems with big aspects of it at that time. Coming yeah. from a pretty conservative Christian background, so I had you know certainly evolution, mm. anything to do with evolutionary science at university, and then I you know I ended up working for a science company for a couple of years, uh, looking at DNA, you know like genetic analysis and yep. stuff like that. And at the time, at that time, it was a massive source of like internal conflict for me. Mm. Like here's all of the science and. That's that's our, you know, and I was trying to sort of show everybody that you could be a scientist and also um, hold to these other truths. Yeah, right. And so you know, I was the kid who uh, at uni who was scrawling all over my exam about how I was giving them the answers they wanted, but um, 
but these weren't true because I knew what was true, and you know. <laughs> so, so, oh, it's a bit embarrassing thinking back now that I'm now that I do some lecturing and, and teaching, because uh, I thought my professors must have been really challenged by that. But <laughs> now I realise they were just shaking their heads they and having another whiskey. Knob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they thought I was a big knob. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, it, it was, oddly enough, it wasn't until really I studied theology a number of years later that it resolved the kind of science faith tension for me. Which is sure. kind of a weird way around to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I remember sitting in one of my early theology classes and the lecturer being, you know, talking about all of these different ways to engage in the Christian tradition and not having to ac- accept literal versions of certain things. And, and I was just like, ah, oh, well, yeah. are you serious? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you know, it was a little bit like, oh, what an unnecessary source yeah. of tension for the last 10 years of my life. Well, wow. Oh, however long. But I really appreciated that about yeah about theology and so i suppose now to get to your question which was quite some time ago um <laughs> now i see you know i mean science and theology are in, in some senses are asking different questions right but they're both concerned with with truth with knowledge and um and i would hope that neither would be scared of the other you know but that actually they would be mutually enriching in many ways and i certainly think from a from a theological perspective a faith perspective now mm. um I find it really sad when people feel they need to reject science yeah. and um, and teach young people to reject science because I think it sets people up for a faith crisis, actually, yeah. at other points in their life, unnecessarily. I mean, I guess I've come to the point where I'm like, science is just trying to help explain how things are. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and yet I'd spent years going oh, I'm not going to take what these people say, you know. Mm, mm. Um, I know better because yes. I've got the truth. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, 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 that kind of stance of, of faith, which I totally understand, and because, I, I, you know, it was me for sure, but, but it does lack curiosity and, mm. and, and wonder and openness because it just, when you've got the truth, then you don't need to learn anything. Yeah. And that's a problematic stance in the world, I think, yeah. now. So what led you to go from the science career mm-hmm. to theology. Right. So I think what happened was I was studying science. No, I was, yeah, studying science and then I started working in science. I was in my first couple of years of working in science while I was also involved in, in um, actively in a church. Yep. And I had started getting, it's, it's sometimes hard to describe, but it's, you know, um, perhaps people who are involved in, in church-related work understand the feeling that you kind of can't get away from, um, but that's I guess what I had at the at the time. But but in particular, it was oriented at that stage toward, um, I guess, a, a desire to see the kind of faith community that I was a part of, and mm. the kinds of faith communities that I'd been a part of in my life, uh, look beyond themselves much more. So I got very interested in in I guess I wouldn't call it I would didn't call it that then, but really it was works of work of social justice, work yep. um, in areas of social concern and social you know ministry. So um, that started going around and around and around in me a lot. Uh, I formed some connections with people that kind of we we talked about that stuff together, and so it became kind of a driving passion for me, uh, and one that I couldn't get away from. And so in the end, I ended up leaving my science career, probably much to the um, <laughs> chagrin of those who had helped fund my <laughs> university career. Not, you know, I'd, I'd loaned a fair bit, but, um, but you know, I think about my like grandma who'd like yep. given me money to study science and now saw me, you know, going off to work for the church. Must have been a bit sad. But um, yeah, I, I, I started working for the church in community 
like ministries, so doing breakfast in schools programs and and stuff like that. That was, that was mm. the kind of stuff I was wanting to see the the church do more. And then over time, it kind of became apparent to everybody, probably that I wasn't very sort of, although I cared about it a lot, I wasn't necessarily very good at it. Yeah. Um, and at that time, the church I was in started a um, like a Bible slash leadership college type thing, and they were looking for people to teach theology, and they didn't have anyone. <laughs> the kind of church it was, uh, who knew any theology. And so they looked around for the person who seemed to be most thinkery. <laughs> I don't know. You, the guy did you go, I'm the most thinkery? They were like, you seem pretty thinkery. Uh, you should teach the theology class. Here's the textbook. Uh, you know, stay a chapter ahead, basically. <laughs> and, so, awesome. uh, and so I ended up teaching theology when I definitely shouldn't have been teaching theology in hindsight. But at the time, that's how it kind of played out. Uh, but I started then picking up some postgraduate study in theology, sort of doing a crossover piece, bit of stuff and and then found that, oh, this is really interesting mm. and compelling and also started to broaden my worldview and, and so that kind of started to open me up to a whole, whole thing. I did find, I, I will say that I found that transition difficult from the point of view that I still really, really cared about the other stuff, right, that I'd gone into this kind of church-related work for. And I felt like teaching in some way was like a step away mm. from doing the actual work with people. And so I had to kind of reconcile with myself that maybe this was my way. I was going to be able to, in a different way, move toward the stuff that I was still passionate about. Mm. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, actually, it makes a lot of sense because I, I guess I'd done my master's study in an area that, pushed me into social justice mm. and, and caring about things of justice. And so when I moved to Christchurch, I then got a job working for an organisation that does rehabilitation of people who have been in prison. And I worked for the employment wing of that. Um, and so that was on the ground with these guys that have prison histories, lots of social problems, lots of um, barriers to them having employment, all that kind of stuff. And... I survived like a year there before I just couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that taught me that you can be really passionate about someone and still not be the right person to do that particular mm. job. Mm. And that actually the people that are the right people to do that job also need people in the background supporting them and, you know, doing the the fundraising or the management or that, you know, there's all sorts of other roles that make this thing work and being on the front lines doesn't have to be everybody's thing, which sounds a bit what you're saying. There. Yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when we were there trying to, um, you know, working with a solo parent and their, you know, their home was had overgrown and needed, and so I was taking a team in, you know. But I think when people saw me sort of trying to figure out how a weed eater worked for about, you know, an hour and 45 minutes <laughs> while everyone else was getting on with stuff, you know, like... I mean, you know, you care about this, but maybe, maybe there's another way to like work out your passions, you know, um, which, yeah. which interestingly, yeah, then into my theology, almost kind of around the other way, but the same kind of thing as, you, mm. you know, into my, um, into my theology flowed that passion for social justice work that flowed into my PhD research that certainly shapes a lot of the way in which I teach mm -hmm. and the kinds of things I talk about now. And so I can see how 
that passion, even from back then, has has yeah. shaped the trajectory of the stuff that I've done since. Even though it hasn't necessarily been that that frontline work in, in that kind of way. Mm. Mm. So now you're you are still teaching. Mm. Um, yeah. You're working for a church as well, doing mm-hmm. some pastoral stuff there. Um, but you're also running your podcast. I am. In, in The Shift. Yes. Um, and you started that some years ago. How, how long ago now? Five? Uh, four years? Four, four years, maybe? Three, yeah, four, and, three or four and, years. And you started it with the byline, When Life and Faith Go Off Script. Yes. Which I love for a start. I think mm-hmm. that's something that attracted me to it in the first place was this idea that actually life and faith just don't work out how you think all the time. Mm. And yet it's very easy to have a belief that it will. Mm. Um, And, you know, one of the things you shared about on your blog right back at the beginning was um, about your faith in life going off script when it came to trying to become a parent. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit about that journey and how it did or didn't connect with the faith that you held at the time? Yeah, sure. Um, It's interesting I think to think about the start of that journey. So you, you know, I um, married um, my wife. It's, you know, it makes sense, doesn't yeah. it? Um, profound. That's what you come here for. <laughs> the truth bombs. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got married, and and we had been friends for a very long time, um, and there hadn't been you know any romantic uh, nature to that friendship. And then somehow it uh, suddenly there was it suddenly there was uh, and that was kind of a beautiful thing and when we got married and about about a year into our um, uh, marriage we had a bit of a chat and we're like yeah maybe we should maybe maybe we're you know we've known each other for so long we don't mm. necessarily need to spend another couple of years making sure we know each other before we have kids because we know each other really well and so um it was it's interesting because it was around that time that I was beginning to um you know I started studying Theology by that point had been studying for a, for a couple of years, and had my faith system had started to get reevaluated and mm. examined in a, in a way that it hadn't been prior. I'd always had big questions about stuff, but I found lots of ways to bury those because they're very inconvenient. And um, and so over this time, you know, in the early part of our relationship, I had I had been processing some of that, and and yeah, and then we thought well, let's let's um, start a family. And then that kind of didn't happen. Um, and interestingly, I think partly because of my faith background, probably, we did nothing about that. Because I think the even though I had started examining some stuff and pulling some stuff apart, the underlying assumption that still sat beneath the surface, even though I probably thought I had dealt with this, was that things will always work out well for people like me, you know. Yeah. Because um, that's what happens. Things yep. things work, and, and I think we both felt a bit like that. Things always work out fine mm-hmm. when it's the right time, you know. And people would say that kind of thing, and it's like, oh, you know, it'll happen when it's the right time. It'll probably happen when you stop trying. And I don't know, all the, all the things people say to, to sort of be helpful. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> lots of platitudes. Uh, well-meant, you know. And and so we, I think, sort of ignored it in some respects. Kind of lived this weird life of kind of of wanting this thing to happen, but also um, just guessing, assuming that it would work out when the time was right. And there were lots of other um, things going on in our life at that time that we were able to dive into as a way of ignoring that. I think, and um, and see, so yeah, it wasn't until a number of years later that we were like. 
guess it's not happening. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, so we, we so several years. Yeah, it would have been several years yeah, before, well. we, before we did anything about it. And I think, you know, one of the reasons for the, the When Life and Faith Go Off script is what I recognised in myself was the script was so kind of strong that even though I had spent some time, you know, pulling apart my notions of God and prayer and 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 prosperity that I had kind of, you know, been immersed in in my 20s mm. uh, and all that kind of stuff in ways that I thought I had done pretty comprehensively, there was still this this deeper underlying kind of psychological assumption that, yeah, but for us this will mm. come together because we're the kinds of people who it should come together for. And um, and so that prolonged that yeah. for, for much longer than it should have. And so the kind of the when life and faith go off script thing is like actually – we need to get, I think, better at acknowledging that the script often doesn't play out that way. And even for the people for whom this script appears to play out the way that everybody said it should, um, there's a lot of hidden aspects to that journey that can be incredibly complex and, and even painful for people, you know? Mm. Yeah. And you, you now have a son. We do. Was that through... Obviously, you didn't just keep waiting and hoping. Right. Like you, mm -hmm. What What was the process there? So yeah, we entered into um, sort of progressive stages of fertility treatment, yeah. and um, and so that sort of started bit by bit. You know, it starts with tests, which are a very humbling experience. <laughs> you know, uh, wandering into the into the little room and having to do your you know situation <laughs> yep. in there. Um, put a sheet over that chair. You know, it's all the whole thing's very kind of confronting in, in yeah. many respects. Not particularly romantic, I will say that. Uh, it's not how I imagined um, <laughs> conceiving a child. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, and so you're just kind of dealing with all of the sort of mm. embarrassment that comes up with that, and all of the kind of the, just the self consciousness, and 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 just you know wrestling with dignity really, mm. and and where we place, where we kind of source that dignity. Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, we um, started going through. You know, tests and then into um, into some fertility treatment, and then in, that didn't work. So then into some other fertility treatment. Then that did seem to work, and that was like a, a really amazing feeling. So you know, we we were um, yeah, my wife was was pregnant, and we were sort of daring to dream, and you know, and then along the way, um, lost that baby, which I wow. think um, I was struck by a few things when that happened. One is just how deeply that hurt and yeah. and um and i and i guess i think it probably always hurts for people i'm sure it does um and then and then perhaps that was amplified even for us because of the kind of the journey you know because of the long period of 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 nothing and then the excitement of oh my gosh this is, this almost is like the promised thing had arrived yes and yeah yeah oh no it hasn't yeah that's right and yeah, so that was well. that was you know really just deeply um devastating and um, and so kind of, yeah, processing through that was another level of going, mm. oh, okay. Um, because there was, a, I think in the initial yeah. instance, it's like, ah, yeah, here we are. Now things are going to work out yeah. for us, you know. But you're way off uh, script now. Yeah, yeah, way off yeah. script now. Um, yep. And and so that played out for it. There was probably another oh, um, three, four um well, there was there was there was before all of that. There was waiting lists and and mm. so on that had gone on for quite some time. So there was like you had to be trying for five years before you could get on the waiting list, and then you had to get on the waiting list for a um, for over a year, and then 
started and tried various things that then didn't work and then you know and then and then this and so yeah we're quite some years through the wow. journey now uh, and then another probably oh, i can't remember exactly but another three years maybe of of fertility treatment um so this is nearly a decade yeah it's about nine years um wow. before before we had our had our boy um and i think what was interesting toward the end of that time was it was another level of off script which was even through most of that I was still like, it'll eventually work, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And then um, towards the end, actually, um, of that whole season, I was starting to go, ah, the future of my life might look very different to what I, to what I thought. And having to wrestle with that was, was a different thing as well. That's mm. like, oh, okay, I had, I had just never considered a life in the future that didn't include kids when I thought about mm. my I don't know, future, when I thought about being an old man, when I, th you know, just yeah. all of that kind of stuff looking forward and you realise there's all these kind of assumed scripts in the way that it all play out. And, you know, we're not unique in, in that script not playing out at all, but mm. it was it was just progressive, like, um, progressive uh, revelations, mm. to use a, that kind of word, uh, of, of the degree to which life is fragile, unpredictable, yeah. um, messy, complicated. Uh, and I think you know when when we entered into even to pregnancy, you know, to miscarriage, and and there was a couple of those along the way. Um, just realizing how many other people were living through that quietly and silently, also, because mm. then they came and talked to you because you know, like you're sort of like you got it was this weird thing of kind of getting entry to the to the club of mm. all of the silent sufferers that just walk among us all the time. Yeah, and I think one of the things that has shaped a lot about how I talk now about anything whenever i'm recording a podcast or standing in front of a room of people a big question in my mind is how will someone in pain hear what i have to say you know yeah. what will they hear when they hear me talk and i don't always get that right at all but i think um i became aware in those some of those very raw experiences of just how um unkind a place the world can be at times yeah. or how harsh the experience of life can be for those who mm. are feeling raw and so um, it's something that's really stuck with me I suppose is is that whenever you're communicating whenever I'm communicating whenever I'm in a room with people mm. some of these people are suffering deeply and to bear that in mind you know yeah mm. yeah and I mean one of the reasons I asked you to talk about this mm -hmm. and and was really grateful that you were happy to was that there are people out there who are suffering in silence. Mm. And it's just, like I know from my own mental health struggles, mm. it's just really good to not feel alone. Mm. Yeah, Actually, people aren't alone, and yet it's still this kind of we don't talk about it, especially in the church. Mm. You know, suffering isn't always something that you desperately need to get out of in a hurry, which is kind of the environments I've been in is – as soon as there's a bit of something, everyone's trying to figure out how do we get you out of this? Yeah. And I mean, your journey is just one where you just can't get you out of, you know? Um, no, that's right. No, there's, there's, um, there's no, <laughs> I mean, people certainly suggested things that would <laughs> get us out of it. Um, you know, and <sighs> yeah, I, I think, there in, in in many streams of the church, and I've certainly experienced this uh, when I was younger. Suffering could, I suppose, be seen as a test, perhaps, and so it was a test you had to kind of pass, or it was a 
there were all sorts of ways to describe it in a way that said this thing, if you do the right stuff, yep. will will end. Mm. And so whether it was that you had to pray against the devil mm-hmm. or whether you had to pass the test and learn the lesson or or believe more or tithe, you know, give another extra amount of money at the miracle offering at conference or whatever it might have been that was going to get you your miracle or get you through this this wilderness experience or desert time or you know whatever language would be get given to it um, the assumption was always that ultimately what God wants for you and if you do the right things will give to you is the ability to get past this and on mm. the other side of it and and I just think I just don't think that's particularly Christian <laughs> like well, it, you know it is, comes is, with that um, everything happens for a reason mindset yeah yeah it? that's right we've got this mindset somehow that if it's good, then you must be doing something right. And yeah. if it's bad, what are you doing wrong? Mm-hmm. You know. And yet, I mean, Jesus got confronted with that same question in the Bible mm. and went, no, nah, it's not that. Mm. And yet here we are 2,000 years later still with that same assumption. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we use it as a way to make sense of the world, right? Yeah. And, and to – because for many people, for many of us – it is um, maybe terrifying mm. to think that I haven't got an explanation for why that thing is hard mm. and there's no solution to it, right? And that's a terrifying feeling for many folk. Um, and so I kind of empathize with the terror and I think that drives really bad theology and really bad ministry and really bad ways of treating mm. But it's not, it's not just a church problem. It's a, it's a wider societal problem. There are all sorts Definitely. of different, different yeah. forms of the same belief, really. Um, but but it comes from that that place of just a, a, fear, a deep fear of of not being able to explain and and feeling a loss of control because of that. And I think um, what what I have found deeply meaningful is a is a faith is a spirituality that has been a source of um, peace and sustenance and nourishment in the midst of pain rather than mm. um, something that is the elimination of it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I think, you know, whether it's, um, you know, um, thinking through disability, whether it's thinking through mental health, um, infertility, you know, all of these different yeah. ways in which, in fact, probably when you get down to it, most of us are not living the script at all. Um, and, and, and what saddens me, I suppose, is that we create a second layer of suffering for people. Yeah, because there's the first layer of suffering, which is the thing itself, and then there's the second layer of suffering, which is all of the reasons why you shouldn't be experiencing the thing you're experiencing, and that sometimes is more deeply painful, yeah, than than the thing itself. Yeah, it's it's a challenge, and it's it's a really good reminder for us to all think about. Actually, we don't know what's going on for people. Mm-hmm. That's a good challenge to go, like you were saying. If I'm talking to people, if I'm speaking, just in the way I interact with people. How would they hear this if if they're suffering? Mm. Um, is actually a really really good question. Um, and yeah, so you you've got this podcast. Mm-hmm. You've tackled a whole lot of topics in it that 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 we just don't tackle. So I mean, I was just scrolling through your yes y- your podcast again today to remind myself all the things I've listened mm. to. Mm. Um, you know, you're all the ways in which your life has been changed. Totally. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you cover things like patriarchal violence um, or even divine violence, you know, when God is smiting people because mm-hmm. they're not doing the right thing or um, 
you know, you're, you you explored different theories around what hell is and whether it even exists. Mm-hmm. Um, which, if you want to go and listen to that, it's fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, really good um, exploration of different ways of looking at hell. But, um, <laughs> you know, you you talked about how Christians don't have to be afraid of evolutionary theory. You've got mm-hmm. all these things that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean – do you just like sparking controversy or, or is there something deeper going on for you that makes you want to have these conversations? I hate sparking controversy. It's so funny. <laughs> I don't know how I've ended up doing this because I'm a, you know, I'm a peacemaker by nature. I'm a, a bridge builder and, a, and yeah. a, a guy who's trying to see everybody's side and, and I like everybody liking me. Um, and I don't know why I, what possessed me to start this uh, keep doing it I'm not sure no I, I mean you know obviously I want to do it but yeah. but it's it's in some respects goes against some of my nature but I think what I've recognised perhaps is some of that nature was trained into me by a church system that said the best thing to do is just to nod and smile and bury your questions you know sure and um, that way we'll all get along and be united and I've, I sort of have seen the the consequence of that for people, which yeah. is sometimes not pretty. And so um, it certainly wasn't for me. So, yeah, um, why, what's what's the underlying thing? There's a, there's a few. One is just at a real base level, I think we should be able to talk about that stuff in faith contexts um, because those are questions people are sitting with. Yeah. And so if we can't talk about them, then we've got a problem. So if, if we're in spaces where it's like, oh, no, that's a subject we just can't ask the question about, then for me, I'm like, that's a, that's a that's a problem for us. Yeah. This is this is not a sustainable faith in my mind because essentially what you're doing is you're getting people to shut down part of themselves so that they can stay in their in their faith environment. Uh, and I don't think that's very healthy for us. And ultimately, what I see for many people is that that works okay maybe until they hit crisis mm. or some kind of interruptive disruptive yeah, moment. Yeah, it totally works until it doesn't. Yeah, it totally works until it doesn't and then yeah. it really doesn't, yeah. you know. Uh, and then it's often anger and, you know, all of the stuff that's like how I've been sold a, a lie here. Yeah. I wasn't sure if I could swear on this podcast, so I didn't. Um, <laughs> you can. Oh, I can. Great. <laughs> uh, you know, um, so so that's just, just a part of my philosophy has been like, we need to be able to talk about these things. So, And often that's my starting point, even just for, for helping people who might not be used to having these kind of conversations to go, well, as a starting point, even if you don't agree with me, Let's just get used to being able to have the conversation itself. Yeah. So that's that's one thing, I guess. I think one of the other underlying things for me, and this probably connects to everything else we've been talking about in terms of suffering and pain mm. and so on, has been that Christian faith, um, the church, has been used and entwined with very harmful forms of power yeah. for a very long time. And... I don't think that's just an institutional problem in terms of, I don't think it's just that we've got some bad systems or some bad people, although I do think, you know, of course those things are present. I actually think some of the beliefs that have formed within the tradition of of the church have themselves led to harmful notions of um, the divine, harmful notions of power, harmful notions of humanness. And I've come to the point in my life where I feel like those need to be talked about and undone. And so a big part of what I try and do 
in all of the conversations that I have is go, okay, how do we see the beliefs that we hold? What, what is the fruit of the beliefs that, that we hold? Yeah. Where do those beliefs come from? Are they in fact reflective of um, the ground? So for me, you know, as, as a Christian, Jesus is the, the center of, you know, of, of my faith tradition. Um, do these beliefs I hold actually reflect the kind of thing he was going on about the whole time? And often, in my estimation, not um, yeah. often. These are these are ways in which that whole story has been taken and used in ways to exert power and control over people, and ultimately propagate harm and suffering for, for others. And so, I think that's been a big part of the underlying impulse of what I've been trying to do. Um, so, I tackle evolution and science partly because I I want to help people reconcile those things because I just think that's healthy, mm. and partly because I see that. Um, one of the things that happens when you say don't believe anything out there, just believe what we're telling you in here, we've got the secret knowledge no matter what the scientists say, is that that leads us down a path of not being able to, of living in a bubble mm. whereby we can then be manipulated, coerced, um, abused um, yeah. and taken down the garden path because we've been trained mm. not to believe things that are actually true. Um, because they're being said out there and the only people you should trust are in here, you know. So in that sense, that whole conversation mm. does ultimately link to all of that as well. One of the things that you you tackle on the podcast and, and one of the reasons that we're having this conversation in my dining room instead of over the internet mm -hmm. is because you're, you're down here for the Awaken Conference. I am. Um, which is run by um, Diverse Church mm -hmm. um, and... For listeners, you can go back and hear about the origins of Diverse Church with uh, my interview with Craig Watson. Um, but yeah, so that's a, a network of um, LGBTQ plus Christians. And this conference is exploring issues of faith and sexuality and gender and, and all the rest of that. Um, I can imagine there was a period in time where you never saw that you would ever be associated with something like this. Mm -hmm. Um you're speaking about how to be a good ally, how to process the journey um, of becoming more inclusive and accepting as, as a church. Mm -hmm. um, how and why did your faith shift on this? Yeah, it's um, I can't pinpoint a, a mm. particular moment. I think it's a, it's a series of connected things over time. I certainly, um, you know, the church system I inherited and, and was immersed in as a younger person was very homophobic. And that was not just like a, a thing that we held, but it was seen as somehow, somehow it had become one of the fundamental tenets of like who were the true Christians and who mm. weren't was whether you were still exclusionary of LGBT um, Q plus folk, right? Which is desperately sad to me now. Yeah. But, um, but it was kind of one of those, those identity markers, you know, and there are a few of them, but that was, that's, that was one of them and still is one of them, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, and and so I've very much had that mindset as a younger person within the church I was involved with, you know, that I went to work at and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, that was very much the prevailing the prevailing view. So a few things happened. Uh, one was when I started studying theology, and I didn't sit in any lectures where these things were talked about. Yeah, because I was studying with an institution that was probably steering around them. But what was interesting to me was I was learning kind of how the Bible worked. You know, I was learning that there were some things in Scripture that I had assumed meant this, that actually meant these other things, or that context mattered, or uh, that it's this ancient library of, of writings that themselves 
are having an argument and a wrestle at times. Uh, yeah. and there's not necess- there's no consistent sort of view biblical view on just about anything because they they having it's an ongoing tussle yeah. about our experience and about what we believe and about what the nature of God is and and all of that kind of stuff. So I think being exposed to that and kind of delving into that um, alongside then uh, at the same time uh, forming friendships with with people who were who were in the rainbow community. Um, those two things kind of happened simultaneously. And and perhaps they wouldn't have happened if I hadn't, you know, maybe I mm. wouldn't have been open even even to that without that theological journey starting to, to undo me in lots of other ways and open me up to the world. Um, and and you know some of those some of those folk that I met uh, were Christian and some weren't, um, but I started to hear their experiences of of the church and of Christianity. Mm. Uh, and and so I'm going through this like double. Yeah, this double movement, I suppose, of, on the one hand, starting to think about how scripture and theology work and don't work, mm. how they're helpful and how they can be misused. And then, uh, again, I guess the off-script thing, encountering people whose lives were certainly off the script, yeah. and yet um, these people were beautiful people, um, like the, the, you know, um, people I knew who had this deep faith that, that in many respects humbled my own because of their their depth of I mean <laughs> they have a hundred more reasons than I not to be a Christian or not to have a, a faith you know and so that the level of persistence and mm-hmm. and desire to still have a faith despite what the church has done to, to me was you know incredibly challenging it still is mm. and so um, those kind of two things were happening at the same time yeah and I guess that just that sent me down the rabbit hole and I started to read and I started to listen and I started to do the do the double thing again of, okay, I'm going to read some theology about this whilst also being curious and open to the people that I was now starting to know in, in real terms and real life and not just as an issue, right, but as, as real people. Yeah. And those two things were in conversation with each, with each other and, and I just got to the point where I was like, I, there's no conceivable way I can, I can hold on to the view that I have inherited on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's. I don't think it's by it at all, you know, sort of required or demanded in order to have some kind of Christian faith. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think I think the opposite might be true. I think that the direction of that the Christian faith and points us, and the story of Jesus points us, is 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 entirely towards uh, opening up, affirming, um, and and not just affirming, but but learning from it. That that, that the queer community are should be seen as a as a gift to the church um, whose voices are to be heard and valued and honoured and given dignity rather than mm. even just sort of the slightly patronising thing of we'll let you in you know it's it's, yeah. it's not that actually it's um, it's something much more than that for mm. me yeah as we kind of near the end um, we can't really overlook what a lot of your last season has been about mm. um, which you know, you spent a lot of the last year with the podcast engaged with your listeners around theologies and practices of megachurches. Yes. Um, particularly following the blogs and, and articles that came out from David Ferrier and mm-hmm. then the mainstream media who picked up that yeah. and ran with that as well. And then the subsequent review of Arise Church here in New Zealand. Was it something you thought you might tackle at some stage or was this, again, something that was even off script for you that Suddenly, this was an issue brought into the public, and you went, "Actually, I need to talk about this too." 
Yeah, I think I had been, um, in many respects, trying to talk about it in roundabout ways all the way along. Um, in the sense that, you know, I talked a bit about my story. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, history very much, you know, that talking about leaving science and going to work for a church that was into a church mm. like this. Um, and so, you know, some of my reflections through all of my theological um, musings on the podcast and even the, the wrestling with power and the dynamics we were talking about before were, were flowing from my... Th- Theological reflections that were also in relationship with my, you know, with my past story yeah. in my own context. So I had been, in many respects, some of what I was processing theologically was was a reflection on the fruit of beliefs that I had experienced within um, that kind of system. Uh, so I had thought I'd probably get away with that, and rather than talking about it more directly, um, <laughs> and partly because I just I was like I don't know if it'd be particularly fruitful to talk yeah. about it more directly or or, or not. Um, but yeah, when the stories started coming out more publicly last year and, and in the way that they did and with the voices of, I, you know, I, I've seen stories in the media before about, mm. about churches and, and stuff like that. But I think, uh, the way in which in these stories, the voices of those who had been harmed, the voices of victims were, were front and center. And I recognized those kinds of stories. Yeah. Um, some of some of those stories were very similar to my stories and, and many of those stories were similar to others that I knew and not just a few, but man, in fact, the last few years of doing the podcast, I'd heard increasingly from people who'd had those experiences of harm within church and not just mega churches. Yeah. Um, you know, harm happens within all sorts of spaces. Yeah. But there are some particular dynamics that, that play out in that space. And I think those churches were being and do hold themselves up perhaps as the exemplars mm-hmm. of Mm. who everybody else should be trying to emulate and a lot of people are trying to emulate that yeah. and designing their whole way of doing church to try and be as close as possible as that thing as, as they can be and if we're seeing that system produce this much carnage and trauma and pain and I mean you know it's some people try and say it's just a few people who have been you know Got it's the wrong not end just of the a stick. People, it's not it? just a few people. It's thousands of people. Yeah. Um, and I've heard from many, many, many of them. Mm-hmm. And and they're not just sort of complaining about this and that. These are some of them young people who have burnt out and experiencing PTSD at 21, 22 years old. Yeah. You know? So we're, we're dealing with um, significant levels of, of abuse and harm here. And in a system that has become the exemplar for everybody else to try and follow. And... Having experienced that myself, I guess I, I felt like, oh, I've got both the historic experience of this kind of thing mixed with some theological reflection. I had a bit of a chat with my friend who, you know, my podcast had been mm. more a solo endeavor up until till then with some interviews and stuff. But I chatted with my friend who'd come, who is in a very similar place to me. We'd been talking together about it for years, um, about the nature of those dynamics. And we were both in pastoral ministry trying to do something very different. And so we were like, I think we should. I think we, I think we've recognised that the news stories, the media stories, you know, David Ferrier's work was was very much the the work of outsiders mm. looking at it from outside. Um, but there were some things that we could speak to that would hopefully offer some solidarity and some understanding for those who, who sort of were, were insiders to the system and mm. had suffered at the hands of it, and and hopefully maybe I don't know if this is possible, but somehow also speak to the insiders who are still very much. Yeah, you know, propagating that that kind of stuff, that kind of system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like listening to your most recent podcast, your first one from this year. Mm. You know, that came with a whole lot of knowledge that there might be friendships that would be cut off from that, or you know, that mm-hmm. there were 
there were relational things involved yes. for you that this could cost you. Yeah. Um, speaking out like this, but at the same time, you saw all the harm mm-hmm. and the people that had been hurt and wanted to stand with them. Mm. Um, and I think, like you say, having been in the system and worked in the system gives you an understanding that a lot of us don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we read the stories and go, that's horrific. But we we haven't necessarily been in that. You know, we might have been in smaller versions of, mm-hmm. like you say, ones that wanted to be that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we hadn't quite got there. So, um, yeah, I think for me, listening to it um, and, and listening to the conversations develop over the last year, it almost, it goes back to what you were talking about with your science thing, you know, that actually this is wanting to make a difference. This is wanting to support people and get alongside them. Mm-hmm. You know, this is you wanting to do the breakfast clubs or the, you know. Sure, yeah. Th- this is the same you the whole way through. Mm, it is, yeah. Um, and actually here's just something that you're the right person at the right time to put your hand up and say, okay, I'm happy to have that conversation. Mm. Um, which I think is a very brave thing, but also just a really important thing. Mm. And I know so many people are, um, have benefited from your your decision to to have that conversation. Mm. So thanks, Andy. Um, yeah, what's what's next for Michael Froston in the shift? <laughs> uh, well, I think um, thanks thanks for those reflections. I think yeah, I definitely felt like somebody needed to be able to say something yeah about this, and um, and I looked around and realised that. I might be the best place to do that, <laughs> and so yeah, you know, I think um, it's been it's been challenging, but it's been I think I'm very glad that we've done it, and I've heard from many many beautiful people um, with very hard stories. Yeah. Um, what is next? There are still, you know, I think yeah, we're not just going to I think rehash the same conversation over and over again forever, but there are some some aspects of the conversation that um, we want to keep diving into not necessarily um in the way that we have before but i think there are some things that have spun out of that um there's there's more to say about the lgbtq plus conversation uh, that we want to that we want to explore there is um there's more i think i'm interested in, in understanding the nature of um, the human psyche and the institutions that we build because i i feel like the these mega church issues in many respects are a an invitation, um, a, a window into human problems with power mm. and human problems with building systems that, that create harm for some supposed greater good. And so I want to explore, and, and in the shift, what's what's going on with some of that, um, why we seem to do this so mm. often and, and why we seem to like using religion to do that uh, and how we can find then some much healthier, more helpful ways of thinking about faith and spirituality and theology. So there'll be yeah, lots of lots of theological conversations to, to explore too that are just gonna be fun and interesting and and so we'll keep opening up that universe. I think um I think curiosity and, and openness is a is a good thing. So there's there's lots there's lots more to talk about. Yeah. Um some of those conversations will be will be painful and hard and some of them will be fun and and curious. So um, we'll see where we go. Yeah. Oh thank you for being someone who's happy to front those conversations because I think there are so many people that that want to have those conversations but don't know how um, I mean even my own podcast is an example where 
um, the times that I've discussed sexuality on the podcast are my most listened to podcasts. Mm-hmm. And this is a conversation we're not supposed to be having. Mm. And yet people want to be having it. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, so thank you for being someone who's prepared to have those conversations, to host those conversations. Um, thank you for the way that you do it, because I think you you invite people into it in a way that um, doesn't make them feel stupid if they hold a traditional, or it's not even traditional, but a more conservative viewpoint mm-hmm. on things. Um, you, you're just inviting people to enter the conversation, whether they land where you land or not, um, which I think is really healthy. And um, thank you for your own vulnerability in it as well and being prepared to talk about yourself through it. Um, yeah, thank you for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven into earth. Cool, thanks, Anne. Hello, hello heaven Will I hear you whisper to come near I found that corridor so rich and so beautiful. Behind everything you just get this real sense that Michael really cares for people and for helping them work through questions and sit well with their doubts. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure you check out In The Shift on all the podcast places and hear some of the fantastic and thought-provoking material Michael is producing. Michael, it was a pleasure to talk to such a genuine human being. Thank you for who you are and what you do. Here is a blessing for you. Michael, may you never lose your sense of wonder and desire to explore and question in science faith, and life in general. And as you share your findings and discoveries, may the impact of your work go far beyond what you might expect. May every moment of fatherhood speak to you of the gift of life, but also of the faith that you discovered that brought you peace and sustenance in the midst of your painful fertility journey. May you continue to find joy in your work as you help students in the early stages of the faith-shifting journey that you yourself have been on. May your podcast continue to be a source of inspiration for many, a safe space for people to bring their questions and doubts, and a conversation partner for those who also believe that we can do life and faith better as people of Jesus than the church often has. As you continue to engage with those often discarded by the church, May you find in them beauty and goodness and encouragement and life. And may your standing with them be a source of strength and encouragement for them also. And lastly, may you know you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when I talk to GP and police medical officer Nigel Yeo. We talk about helping people with their physical and mental health building a relationship with patients and families, Nigel's medical and forensic work for the police, and caring for those who others wouldn't want to help. It's another moving and inspiring kōrero. Until then, me inoi tātou. E tō mātou matua i te rangi, kia tapu tō ingoa. Kia tau mai tō rangatira tanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātou ai nei He taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Mū 
mātou hara me mātou hoki e muru nei e o te hunga e hara ana kia mātou aua hoki mātou e kawea kia whakawaia e ngari whakorangia mātou i te kino Amen